Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servants are warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And so, Lord, teach us now. And as I preach, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of the hearts of all listening be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you open your Bibles now again to our sermon text, Zechariah chapter 8, in your Pew Bibles, page 796. And since we read the text earlier, I won't be rereading it again in full uh, right now, but uh, we will be working through it um, mostly verse by verse in the sermon. So please have it open before you uh, now. The people of Bethel have come seeking the answer to their question. Now that the temple is nearly rebuilt, do we need to keep on fasting and mourning over the destruction of the old one? This question provokes the Lord to speak through his prophet Zechariah, and his response fills chapters 7 and 8. Last time we saw that he doesn't immediately answer the question. He first challenges the motives of the people. Were you really fasting for me in the first place? Were you doing it for yourself, just seeking to make yourselves feel better? Is that the kind of fast that I seek? And last time I challenged you to reflect on the question, why do you come to worship? Are you really seeking the Lord? Are you doing it for him? And the Lord went on. He issued several warnings. He pointed out the hypocrisy of his people. They needed to watch out or they will fall into the same sins as their forefathers who suffered under the judgment of God. The Lord also called them to practice justice and true godliness, to imitate his character in the way that they treat one another. And now as we come to chapter 8, we see a great shift as this chapter is absolutely overflowing with promise after promise of blessing. It still contains a call to obedience, but now it's in light of these coming blessings. And this calls us to reflect on the question, how do you respond to the Lord's blessings in your life? Do you marvel at his power and his grace? Do you express your gratitude and respond in obedience to him? Here he does call his people to respond in obedience. But it's clear that this obedience is to be motivated not out of fear of judgment. Rather, here we have gospel-based, grace-based obedience. Grace-based motivation. Obey the Lord because he has blessed you and greater blessing is still to come. In other words, obey the Lord out of gratitude for his salvation. And as we come to the final section of this passage, we'll see that the Lord blesses his people that they might be a blessing to others. 
that they might be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we'll see this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and in the Great Commission in the New Testament. And thus it is still being fulfilled as we evangelize, as we proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth today. As we look at these blessings today, as we work our way through the passage, the question I want you to be asking yourself is this. How should I respond to God's blessings in my life? Because the truth is that the Lord has richly blessed you. Even in the hard seasons, you can count your blessings and they are many. So we'll be looking at the chapter this morning in three parts. First, marvelous blessings. Second, blessed in order to serve and obey. And third, blessed to be a blessing. So first, marvelous blessings. Before we get to the first promised blessing, I want you to notice, just notice how the passage opens. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. If you keep on reading, you'll notice this refrain all throughout the passage. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It's repeated every verse or two throughout the whole passage, ten times. And in fact, this title, the Lord of hosts, it's used 14 times in this passage. And you may recall from an earlier sermon, uh, this title is used often in Zechariah. It speaks of the Lord as the commander of the heavenly armies. And so it emphasizes his almighty power. And so in this passage, which speaks of an outpouring of blessings, so many, in fact, that it would have been hard for God's downcast and oppressed people to believe that so many blessings could really come. He reminds them again and again who is speaking and who he is. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. Then we come to the first blessing. He says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. We saw something very similar in the very first night vision in 114. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And as I said at that time, the Lord's jealous love, it's like the love of a devoted husband for his wife. The love that says, I want you for myself and for no other. And I want to protect you from anyone who will harm you or defile you in any way. And in fact, we see here this love is actually paired with anger against any who had or would harm his beloved people. And we see a second blessing in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. The Lord's return to Jerusalem is also something we've seen before also in that first night vision. He is already present with his people, but there is a greater fullness to come when the temple is completed. But here we have something that's new a new name for Jerusalem. It's called the faithful city, or could be translated the city of truth. Now certainly this city has not always been faithful to the Lord in the past, but this is the description of what it is called to be, what it ought to be, faithful and true. Then we have verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls 
playing in its streets. Just think of all that they had been through. War, exile, oppression, all these exact their heaviest tolls on the elderly and on the children. In times of great hardship, everyone is forced to work, from the youngest to the oldest, and not many will survive to old age when the toil is heavy and there is little to eat. But here we have a beautiful picture of peace and prosperity. Old men and women are free from their toil. They're able to simply sit and rest. Food is so plentiful that children can play in the streets, rest and play for male and female, young and old. This may seem normal to us today, but it was something that the people in Zechariah's day were longing for. And for us as well, it's something that we should not take for granted. The blessings continue in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Here we see the Lord saving his people, bringing them back from all the lands where he had scattered them, bringing them back to dwell in Jerusalem. Just as he had returned to dwell there in verse 3, now he brings his people back as well. This is followed by the language of covenant relationship. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah uses this same language when describing the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel uses it when describing the new birth. In Ezekiel 36, 28, this language, it means the Lord is committed to you, and he expects faithfulness from his people in return. Now, in the midst of all these promised blessings, We have verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Here he's asking the question, Does this seem marvelous in your sight? Do you stand in awe at all that the Lord is promising to do? Are these coming blessings hard for you to believe? And yet, From the Lord's perspective, are these things difficult? Is anything too hard from the Lord who created the heavens and the earth? Certainly not. He does as he wills. Nothing is difficult for the Almighty. We may marvel. We may stand in awe. And in fact, we ought to. For God, he does as he pleases. And though it may seem marvelous to us, it is no challenge to him. So this first section we see a series of marvelous blessings simply poured out on God's people. And that brings us to part two, blessed to serve and obey. Here the blessings continue, but now they serve as motivation to serve and obey the Lord. Verses 9 to 13 form a longer section, and it's bracketed at the beginning and the end with the same exhortation, let your hands be strong. So here the Lord calls his people to continue the hard work of building the temple. You also see in verse 9 that Zechariah points to the prophets who were present when the temple's foundation was laid, and that's namely himself, Zechariah, and the other prophet of these days, Haggai. And in fact, this section has many allusions and reference 
references to the prophecies of Haggai. Then in verse 10 we read, For before those days there was no wage for man, or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. So here we have described a poverty of the land that was so pervasive that there was no money to be had, no wages for people's work, no money to pay to hire out animals. In fact, Haggai describes this in Haggai 1, 9 and 10. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. In addition to this poverty, Zechariah also describes violence and discord, every man set against his neighbor. But then we see a complete reversal. That's the blessing to come. Verse 11, but I will not, now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce. And the heaven shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Here we see this blossoming of prosperity. As the people are now carrying on the work of building the Lord's temple. They have faithfully obeyed the Lord's call to build, and now the Lord is calling them to strengthen their hands, to press on with the work until the job is done. And then we read in verse 13, As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Here we see another beautiful reversal. From curse to blessing. And in fact, this is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. That in him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We'll see more about how exactly this comes to be fulfilled at the end of this chapter. And then we have another reversal in verses 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath... And I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So now I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Here we see this reversal in the way the Lord is treating his people. He has purposed to bring good to them. Now we might ask, why such a reversal? Why such a change from judgment to seeking to bless them? Is it because they are more righteous than their fathers? We've seen clear signs that they are not, or if so, not by much. We see many calls in this very book for their repentance. Multiple warnings that if they do not repent, they will end up like their fathers. And even if they do heed these warnings and repent, we know that even this, it's a gift of God's grace. For repentance and faith are products of God's spirit working in a person. So in the end, it's all of grace. And yet here we see, God has determined to bless them. And with that blessing, he calls them to respond as befits his holy people. To respond with a godly life. And that's what we see, verses 16 and 17. 
These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. These commandments are very similar to what we saw last time in chapter 7, 9, and 10. Again, we have two positive and two negative commands. And notice that these are one another commands. They focus on how God's people are to treat one another. The first is particularly strong. Speak the truth to one another. It's not enough to simply not lie. Rather, you must positively speak the truth. The second, to render judgments, true judgments. It's similar to what we saw last week. At this time, it's added that these should make for peace. And the two prohibitions in verse 17, they focus on the heart. The first, do not even think about harming another. It's a repeat from last week, 7.10, but it's something well worth repeating. And then the second says, love no false oath. Rather than simply saying, do not make a false oath, this targets the heart. To swear falsely, it's a, a wicked action. But to love to swear falsely, to love a false oath, that's doubly wicked. And so the Lord says, love no false oath because this is something that I hate. So to sum up this section, God has determined to pour out blessing upon blessing on his people. And now he calls his people, let these blessings serve as motivation to respond to him in obedience and godliness, to become more like the Lord who is blessing them. And here, let me remind you of my question to you. How do you respond to the Lord's blessings in your life? When you receive his blessings, do you let them draw you closer to his heart? And our third part this morning, blessed to be a blessing to all nations. As we near the end of chapter 8, we finally get the Lord's answer to the question of the delegation from Bethel. The question that kicked off this whole response from the Lord. Should we keep on fasting? Verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love, truth, and peace. This is an answer, but if you read it carefully, it's still not exactly a direct answer. They had asked about the fast of the fifth month, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now the Lord includes the fast of the fourth month, lamenting the breach of the walls of Jerusalem, the fast of the seventh month, lamenting the murder of the governor, Gedaliah, and the fast of the tenth month, mourning when the siege of Jerusalem had begun. The Lord promises he will turn all these fasts into seasons of joyous feasting. But he doesn't completely answer their question in terms of saying, stop fasting right now. He doesn't exactly say when their fasting will turn to feasting. And notice also the closing exhortation. Therefore, love, truth, and peace 
whether it is fasting or now feasting, you still cannot separate the religious ritual from the underlying relationship with the Lord and from the character of the Lord, the Lord who loves truth and peace. And so he calls his people likewise to love truth and peace. This doesn't mean have warm, fuzzy feelings when you think about the abstract concept of truth and peace. It means you have to actually live your life dedicated to truth, seeking truth. And similarly, you must be dedicated to peace, seeking to maintain and pursue peace in all of your relationships. It's one thing to write a college entrance exam where you say, just like everyone else, I want to establish world peace. There's probably thousands of examples entrance exams, entrance essays, just like that written every year. They accomplish nothing. It's another thing to actually be a peacemaker in real ways in your everyday life. To be a person who forgives others. Who, when someone sins in a relationship, actually confronts that sin which destroys peace. By speaking the truth in love and seeking reconciliation when something has gone wrong in a relationship. That is real peacemaking. And so the Lord here says, love, truth, and peace. And now we must ask, when does this fasting turn to joyous feasting? I can tell you that when Jesus came, the Jews were as enthusiastic about fasting as ever. And they continue to keep these four fasts fasts in particular. In fact, Orthodox Jews continue to keep these four fasts to this day. So they consider these things unfulfilled. But Jesus had a different interpretation. Here's what he had to say. Luke 5, 33 to 35. They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus, the bridegroom, had come. And so the time of fasting, of mourning and lamenting was over. Moreover, Jesus, as I've said so many times, was the coming of God's temple. In human flesh, the coming of God himself to dwell in the midst of his people in glory. And so it was no longer a time for weeping and fasting, but a time rather of joyous feasting. But as Jesus also said, his disciples would weep and fast when he was taken away from them on the cross. But what happened three days later? He rose again. And so let us rejoice. Now certainly, he is now ascended. He is no longer physically present. But as he said, I am always with you in spirit. And so we say that we live in the already and the not yet, the time between the times. It is certainly no longer appropriate to lament and fast over the destruction of the old temple. When we are members in the new spiritual temple in union with Christ, with God's spirit dwelling within us. Since Jesus has come, it is certainly more a time of feasting than a time of fasting. And yet we are also in a season of waiting. 
longing for the glorious bodily return of the bridegroom. And then we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's in this season of waiting when it is appropriate at times to fast as we long for his return. And yet, since he is always with us, we feast more than we fast. Personally, I'm glad to be a part of a church that's known for its fellowship meals every first Sunday of the month, our own little feasts. For Christ has come. He has risen and ascended. And we have much to celebrate. Now we come to the final blessing in our passage that the nations will come, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Just as the delegation from Bethel had come to entreat the favor of the Lord, now we see that now becomes the pattern that many more will follow. Many peoples, even mighty nations, they will all come to Jerusalem with the same purpose, to seek the Lord, to entreat his favor. This coming of the nations to Jerusalem, it's a theme from the earlier prophets, especially Isaiah. We also saw it earlier in Zechariah 2.11, where we read, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people. We get a more detailed picture of what this will look like in the last verse, 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There are several details worth unpacking in this verse. Uh, ten men, it's obviously a large round number picturing an abundant harvest from the nations. Even as Jesus said, the fields are ripe for harvest. Taking hold of the robe, it's a plea for help or mercy as the Gentiles are begging to be led to the Lord. Then the mention of men of every tongue coming all converging on Jerusalem. It's a picture of the reversal of Babel. Instead of God confusing their languages and dispersing the people across the earth, here there is a great ingathering to the place where the Lord has come to dwell in glory. And of course, all this points us to exactly how this prophecy is fulfilled. There is one sense in which it is Jesus who fulfills these verses all by himself, for he is the perfect Jew who leads all the nations to the Lord all by himself. But also we see in the book of Acts, which describes all that Jesus continues to do and all that he does through his apostles after his ascension and then through his apostles and then through his whole church. On the day of Pentecost, the curse of Babel begins to be reversed and the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. The gospel is heard, at first primarily by Jews, but by Jews from all over the earth. Jews speaking many languages. And it is these Jews who will then be dispersed, going to their homes, and they will bring the good news to many nations. How many of those 3,000 who were converted that day would then go on to lead 10 Gentiles? Or perhaps 
even more to the Lord. And it's because of that explosion of the gospel from the earliest days of the church that it has come down to us even today. And so God has truly blessed his church, blessed his people, that we might be a blessing. This chapter is so filled with blessings that it must have been hard for the original hearers to take them all in. They must have marveled. The Lord also challenges them to respond with faith, to believe them, and to respond with obedience, with godliness. Let me ask you again, how do you respond to the manifold blessings that you have received in Christ? For surely you have been blessed. Just as Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then Paul goes on to list them. The blessings of predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, our eternal inheritance all sealed to us with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And though Christ does call us to take up our cross as we follow him, a suffering Savior, though he calls us sometimes to leave homes or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for his sake and for the gospel, he promises that we will receive a hundredfold of the same, even now in this time, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life, Mark 10, 29 through 31. This hundredfold blessing refers to what we gain through gaining one another in the church, through gaining a new family and sharing in one another's joys and griefs, in one another's abundance and needs. I could go on enlisting all the blessings we gain in Christ, but the bottom line is that Christ has fulfilled the prophecies and the promises of blessings in this passage and in so many others. And you have received these blessings and so many more. So do you marvel at the grace of God? Do you respond by pouring out your heart to him in thanksgiving? Do you love him as he has loved you? And you gratefully serve him with all that is in you. It's so easy to lose sight of our blessings. I know because I do it all the time. I get focused on my struggles. I obsess over the few things that I lack. Rather than all the needs that are met every single day. But nevertheless... The Lord continues to show his grace to sinners like you and me. His grace and his mercy should never cease to cause us to stand in awe. For he has lavished upon us blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And so let us respond with thanksgiving, with love, and with grateful obedience. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is so easy for us to lose sight of all the marvelous blessings that you have poured out upon us. And yet even when we are ungrateful, you still continue to be gracious to us. 
Father, teach us to count our blessings. Give us eyes to better see your grace so that we might thank you and praise you aright. For we know we ought to give thanks in all circumstances and we fall so far short of us. Help us, Lord, to marvel at your grace and so respond with hearts full of love, full of gratitude, and eager to serve you with all that we are. For this is what you deserve. And you are the glorious God who has given us all these things. And so we praise you and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.